Well, good morning, Crossing Church. How are you doing today? What a day. What a day yesterday was. Wow. I mean, it was a beautiful fall day. I know it had to be that way at all of our locations. I want to welcome all of our locations joining from all over this region. We're so thankful for each and every one of you and what you do uh, for the Lord in the kingdom. Just so amazing. And if you're inside and online, we are really, really thankful for you as well. And it's when we get into environments like this that we realize, because this world is always crashing in on us, that we have hope. How many of you like to have a little hope? Yeah, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why you're here at one of the locations today is because you have the opportunity to be around other people looking for the same thing, and God is here, and He is the author of hope, and uh, He'll give you that hope. And uh, I want to thank the Lord for uh, the last, uh, I don't know, 36 hours uh, because uh, Allison and I were able to do the first marriage retreat in our new marriage retreat center at the camp. People were freaking out. They're like, this is like a four-star Marriott. It really is. And uh, uh, they had an incredible time. But the best part of it was it was instilling hope for marriages. And people were doing the hard work. They were doing the homework. And, and uh, there was a lot of that uh, just one-on-one -on -one time as a couple, unpacking things and working those things out. And uh, uh, God is so good in that. And uh, there's three more of those this fall. There's four more in the spring. And uh, if you've never experienced a marriage retreat, it'll be like a concentrated, awesome 22 hours uh, where you can put in the work to make your marriage better than ever. And you can sign up for that on the website. Well, today we're starting a brand new series from the book of John. And along with that, we have a reading plan. And a lot of you, you might say, John is my favorite book of the Bible. It doesn't take a long time to read 21 chapters, uh, but if you go slow and you read uh, John through this while we're preaching through it, I think that'll really bless you. And So this is what that looks like, and there's a QR code, as you know, uh, uh, they're available for you at all of our locations. Just scan that, and uh, you'll be able to get on this reading plan and have a little devotional time. It'll be great for you. A couple of weeks ago... I had someone come up to me after the service, very troubled, and uh, just trying to establish or reestablish a relationship with God, and starting reading the Bible in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, and got into Exodus, Leviticus, and it wasn't just all of that, but it had to do with wars and death and you know, in this history, and just struggling with the idea of how is this a good representation of God? I have a different understanding of God than that. Can you help me understand why? And was asking some questions why. And I said, don't read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Because the Bible is not a book. It's a collection of books. The Bible is a very compact library. And uh, I said, if, if, if you really want to get a good understanding of the Bible, start with the book of John. 
in the New Testament. Because really, the Bible is a book all about Jesus. And when we get into the Gospels, uh, we're learning about Jesus. But when you get to John, it's even better. And I'll tell you why. Because when you're reading the Gospel of John, you're reading the perspective of Jesus from his best friend. Because John is his best friend. That was John. And that's kind of how it is in life, right? I mean, uh, I imagine there's some of you that would really like to know more about a particular celebrity or a, a, a sports star or something, and you can read books by them. But what if you were able to sit down with like their best friend and, uh, and ask questions like, uh, what was, what's this person like here and what, what are they like there? I had that opportunity a few years ago since I'm the publisher of Christian Standard to sit down with Fred Gray. I was doing some research because I have to do some of that with, with uh, what we're presenting in that, in that magazine. And I, I was doing a, uh, a, an article on Marshall Keeble and there were four young men sitting around him, like in a square around him. And I wanted to know who those four young men were. So I just started doing some research on that. And I landed on this one guy that was in the lower right-hand part of that picture, and his name was Fred Gray. And uh, I, it was amazing to me what I learned from researching this guy. And in the course of what we do with the Solomon Foundation, we had done some work uh, with a church in Atlanta, a man named Andrew Hairston, who was a judge, I believe the first African-American judge in Atlanta. And he was personal friends with Fred Gray. And uh, I was able to have an interview with him uh, at Lipscomb University in Nashville. So I drove down to Nashville and sat down with, at the time, I think he was 88, and had the opportunity to talk to him. Some of you have no idea who this guy even is. Well, let me tell you. So Fred was, was born in Montgomery, uh, Alabama, and uh, when he was very young, decided he wanted to go into ministry. That's how he connected with Marshall Keeble, because he had a school uh, for young people in Nashville. And so he went from Montgomery to Nashville and studied under Marshall Keeble. But when he was uh, in his teenage years, he really saw what was happening with segregation. And he in his heart, he decided he wanted to destroy that. He wanted to stop this, this injustice. And he, uh, you couldn't get a college education in Alabama if you were black. So he had to go up to uh, Ohio and Cleveland, got his education, and came back uh, to Montgomery, Alabama. So uh, he opens up a law office, and there's not, there wasn't a lot of work for a black lawyer in Montgomery, Alabama back then. Uh, and so he did have some time on his hands, uh, but uh, there was this lady that, that worked around the corner as a seamstress at a department store, and she was a youth group leader for the NAACP, the local NAACP, and they started having lunch together. They were both single, they started having lunch together, they became friends, and uh, her name was Rosa Parks. And... Uh, about that time, there was a little girl, she's 15 years old, her name's Claudette Colvin, and she uh, had to ride the city bus to get uh, from school to home, 
and uh, they had an early release that day, and so she got on the bus at a different time than when she normally would get on the bus, and uh, she was told to give up her seat for a white person, and it scared her, and she didn't want to give up her seat, and so she was taken off the bus and arrested. And she was 15, taken to jail. And they called Fred Gray. It was one of his first cases. And Fred got her out of jail. And so the people that were in the civil rights movement that uh, were gathered in Montgomery, Alabama, decided to have a meeting at a lady, her last name was Robinson, her house. And they started talking about, what are we going to do about this? And they got this idea that they would have a one-day bus boycott. And uh, at the time, Fred Gray's 24 years old. So kind of put this in perspective. He's 24. And, uh, uh, and, and, and Rosa Parks was going to be the person who was going to be arrested. And, uh, and, and Fred is working in the youth group with her. And uh, so they're talking about, well, who's going to lead this? Somebody's got to lead this. And there was a guy named E.D. Nixon who was a voting rights uh, person that was a, uh, a leader in Montgomery, but they were a little worried about E.D. Nixon doing that because this is really something more about uh, desegregation. And uh, Fred said, I can't do it because they'll disbar me. And they're trying to figure out who's going to lead this. And uh, uh, the lady whose home they were in, the host, said, we got this new preacher, a young guy, uh, in our church, and you know nobody knows really who he is, but he can really move people with words. And it was Martin Luther King. And so Martin Luther King became the spokesman of the Montgomery bus boycott that didn't last one day, it lasted 382 days. And over the course of his life, Fred Gray was responsible for so much in our country that has to do with desegregation, like the desegregation of Alabama public schools, which became the model for the desegregation of all schools in the South, and higher uh, universities, and University of Alabama, and so many other things, but sitting down with this guy, and I'm, 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 I'm looking at like history incarnate, you know, I, I'm, I'm talking to a guy that's this giant and, I'm, and I remember asking this really, really foolish question. I go, what was it like, you know, being in this, like he was the lawyer for, uh, for Martin Luther King until he moved to Atlanta, like got him out of jail, I don't know how many times. He was, he was the lawyer behind the Selma to Montgomery March. It's just all this stuff is coming out of him. And he's sharing all this. And I go, what was it like to be with all these famous people? He goes, we weren't famous people. We're just a bunch of kids. We didn't know what we were doing. We just saw something that was wrong and needed to be fixed, and we were just doing whatever we could to do that. And to listen to his stories, all of a sudden, because I was with like one of the best friends of these people, it became so much more real to me. Because it's different when you're talking to a best friend. And that's what it's like when you read the book of John. Because when you read the book of John, you're getting this perspective of Jesus from his best friend. And that is particularly important if you're wanting to have an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Because you're talking to the first guy who really had that intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So when John writes his gospel a little later in life from those earlier gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he wants you to understand Jesus in a different way. He wants you to feel the weight of who Jesus actually is. So he doesn't start the, the book that you're going to read like, hey, Jesus is my best friend. He starts out by helping you to realize what in the course of his relationship to Jesus, he realized that Jesus is the Son of God. Not just the Son of God, but God himself in human form. And that's how he starts the book. Look at John 1, 1 to 5, and then 9 to 14. In the beginning was the Word. Now, that's an interesting, that's interesting, and I could preach a whole sermon just on that, those four letters right there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word is describing Jesus, but it's describing him in his pre-human form. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God when? In the beginning. Oh, wait a minute. The beginning wasn't the manger, was it? No. The beginning, like the Genesis beginning. And though through Him, check this out, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. Like He was a creator, God? Yeah. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Because we're talking about not just light, we're talking about good and evil, right? And the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now we're talking spiritual light. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, and the, wor the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own. Now, he owns this world, right? But his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, he, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And the word became flesh. Wow. And made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, that is lofty language. Jesus is my best friend. No, I need for you to understand the gravity of what I'm saying. The reality of who Jesus really is. So, Along with John, let's you and I go through this together, okay? Number one, he's the Word of God. Look at verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. So this helps us to understand the pre-existence of Jesus before he was named Jesus. He was called the Word of God. How did God create all things? He spoke them, and God said, let there be light. God said, God said, right? So the power of creation was in the speech 
of God. The Word of God. And it's describing the fact that Jesus played a role in creation. And not just a role. It says that all things were created by Him and for Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. He was the Creator God. That's going to be a very big deal for you and for me if we really believe that we can be a new creation. Because only Jesus can do that, right? Second thing, He is life and light. Look at verses 4 and 5. And it was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. You know, that was the first thing that was created in Genesis. God said, let there be light, right? Before He created life, He created light. Light And he says Jesus is the light. You see, John's connecting us all the way to the beginning of the Bible. And then he says, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So this is saying that, that Jesus is the very glory of God, the light of God, the glory of God, and that light has power over darkness. And when we talk about darkness, we're not talking about just It's dark in here. We're talking about spiritual darkness and spiritual oppression. It's that kind of light. Not just a physical light, but a spiritual light. And it's a light to everyone, to everybody. That's what 9 through 13 says. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. This part of the scripture says he was unrecognized and he was unreceived. But he was God's answer. God's answer to the human dilemma, the sin dilemma. He was God's answer to bring lost children home. And that's you. And that's me. And then this other one that's just mind-blowing in verse 14. That God became a man. God became human. The Word became flesh. And made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is where God introduces His amazing plan to bring us back into relationship with Him as His children to be part of His family. And Jesus, and only Jesus, is the substance of that plan. There is no other plan. Jesus is the plan. That's why he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. You know who said that? You who wrote that down for us? John. Before we can have an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus, we have to understand who he really is. Now, we can read about his teaching. You can read about his healing, his relationships, his miracles, his suffering, his death, even his resurrection, in all the other Gospels and even this one, but you can still miss it. And and John is saying, I don't want you to miss this. I want you to get this. This is who he is. 
He's God in human form. He settles this right up front. So the rest of the time you're reading John, you know that. He's not just a prophet, although he's a great prophet. He's more than that. He's, he's not just a teacher, although he's this incredible, unmatchable teacher. He's more than that. He's not just a healer, although he can heal like nobody else has ever seen. He's more than that. He's not just a priest, even though he's this incredible priest before God after the order of Melchizedek. He's more than that. He's not just a king, although he is the king of kings. He's more than that. And he's not just a savior, because his salvation can reach all of us anywhere, in any circumstance. He's more than that too. He's God. Exclamation point. The Apostle John. And then John pivots and he gives us four illustrations about this truth. The truth of who Jesus really is. And the first one is John the Baptist's description of him. So when you're reading John 1 and John 2, this is what you're getting. Ready? In John 1.29, it says, The next day John, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God. Those four words, really powerful. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. John was six months older than Jesus. But John says he was before him. See what John, the writer of the book of John, is bringing out, right? I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, he heard God say to him, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Now when John said, this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, every Jew knew what he was talking about. Because every year, they celebrated Passover. And at Passover, they butchered a one-year-old male lamb without spot or blemish to be reminded that God would pass over their sin. That's why it's called Passover. The tenth plague of Egypt. When God himself, not an angel of the Lord, I know that's been misquoted a lot. It doesn't ever say that. It says the Lord passed over. And if you put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel of your dwelling, from that lamb, he passed over you. You see the picture of the gospel. You see the picture of the cross. You see the blood of the cross. And God is saying, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And when the blood of Jesus is applied to your heart. He passes over your sin and mine. So here is John prophesying at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and he's saying 
This is the Lamb of God. This is the solution. This is the once and for all sacrifice. And this will take away the sins of the world. And then he puts an exclamation point on it because he says that a dove descended on Jesus. And if you look in the other Gospels, it says that there was a voice from heaven, God himself, who said, this is my beloved son and I am well pleased with him. And you connect with this because when you are under the blood, when you have the blood of Jesus Christ applied to your life, that Holy Spirit, like a dove, doesn't just descend on you, He indwells you. And you relate to that. What a beautiful picture. John's putting all the pieces together. He's figuring it out, and he's sharing that with you in the Gospel of John. Second illustration, Nathaniel. Nathaniel's called. And uh, as w- to be one of the apostles. And uh, Jesus uh, talks about, look, behold, someone in whom there is no guile. And then he's like, how do you even, how do you even know me? And Jesus goes, I saw you when you, were, when you were sitting down under the fig tree, which was not there. Like, it was like Jesus knew stuff about this guy. And Nathaniel is amazed. He's like, you must be a prophet because how would you know that? And Jesus kind of flippantly, kind of, I think, whimsically says, oh, uh, you, you were impressed by that, Nathaniel? You're going to see greater things than that, buddy. And boy, does he. Look what he says, Jesus says to Nathaniel in verse 51. He says, then he added, very truly I tell you, you'll see heaven open and the angels of God Ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What is he telling Nathaniel and what is John relating to you? That God and Jesus have this direct connection. Like Jesus is connected to heaven. Like not only is he connected to heaven, he's the way to heaven. Clearly relating the nature of who Jesus actually is. And doing that to Nathaniel all the way back there. That he completely knows you. And he loves you. And he has a purpose for your life and a destination. And he knows the way there. So when you don't know the way, he knows the way. And he'll get you there. Third illustration. Jesus turns water into wine. This is actually before his ministry as a Messiah ministry begins because it actually begins at Passover. And Jesus' three years of ministry is marked by Passovers. But this happens before that because he's invited to a wedding feast and his mother Mary is there and they run out of wine at this uh, wedding feast, which is like a social disaster. And Mary comes to Jesus and he goes and says they have no more wine. Now, she didn't say, hey, Jesus, would you turn some water into wine? I don't know if she knew that or not. Just said, they don't have any more wine. Like, can you solve this problem? Jesus is a little irritated with that because his ministry hasn't officially begun. It doesn't begin until Passover. But it is an illustration of his power over nature. He can change the nature of a thing. And it is an illustration of his nature. That he was willing to do it. Because they needed it. And I love this story. So they go into a room. There's these amphora, which is a a fancy word for big giant jars. And these jars are full of water. But they're not just full of water. 
they're full of non-potable water, okay? So there's a difference between potable water and non-potable water. If you've ever uh, been like on a in a camper, you know, you don't want to drink the non-potable water because you're going to get sick with something, right? You want to drink the, the drinkable water. That's what potable means. It means drinkable water. And if you're catching it off your roof and it's, you know, going through a gutter into a jar, you probably don't want to drink that, you know, because it's got like the leaves from the roof in it. This, these were the jars that Jesus went to, the non-potable water. It was the water they used to scrub the floors. It was the water that they used to wash feet. That water. Dirty water. And he goes to the dirty water. And he has someone dip down into that water and taste the dirty water. If I was that person, I'd be like, I don't really want to taste this water. And Jesus didn't turn it into wine. He turned it into the finest wine. He turned the dirtiest water into the finest wine. Little hint about the nature of God. He has power over nature. like He can change the atomic substance of a thing because he's a creator God. Connect that back to one, right? He's able to change the nature of a thing, but it also gives you insight into his nature. Some of you at all of our locations right now, if you were to describe yourself, you would say dirty water. Nasty, polluted water. That is my life. And you're thinking, I don't know if God can deal with me. And I'm telling you, God has the ability, Jesus has the ability to turn the dirtiest water into finest wine. And he, if he can do that there, what can he do with you? If you let him. Fourth illustration. Jesus clears the temple. I mean, this is Passover. This is his, the beginning of his ministry. He goes into the temple. There's all these money changers. They're making money. It's like, it's like going to a Cardinals game and paying $8 for a Coke. You know, they're just totally, because these people have to come from all over the world, and they're overcharging like crazy, and they're giving bad exchange rates, and they're taking advantage of people coming to worship that way. And Jesus came, comes in prophetically responding to, zeal for my house will consume me. And he turns over their tables. He makes a whip of cords like animals. He drives the money changers out of the temple. He sets all the animals loose. It's total mayhem. And the religious leaders who are making money off of this say, by what authority are you able to do this? What Jesus is doing is he is showing his authority. This is my house. Again, proclaiming himself to be God. Showing his priestly office. Because that's where priests function, in the temple. And as mediator between God, remember the, the, the stairs going up and down, and the angels ascending and descending. As mediator between God and us, he says no. He is occupying his priestly office. And then he refers to himself. And he says these words to the religious leaders. Tear down this temple. And I will raise it up in three days. And of course, they think they're ta he's talking about this building. And they go, well, it took 46 years to build this. What are you, nuts? 
But you know what he's saying. And I know what he's saying. You're going to tear down this temple. You're going to crucify this temple. You're going to rip this temple apart. You're going to rip this body down. But I'm going to raise it up in three days. Prophetically saying why he's here at the very beginning of his ministry. The temple was a place for worship, to worship God, to come close to God. And Jesus is establishing his authority over worship. That this was his house and he is the one and only mediator and the one and only sacrifice that is acceptable to God for our sins. Now you're going to get more into the book of John and you're going to see this whole best friend thing. But you need to lay a foundation, a firm foundation. And that's what I'm giving you right now. That's what John's giving you right now. This is who you're worshiping. And near the end of John's gospel, in John chapter 20, he reveals the purpose of him writing this gospel. It's in John 20, 30, and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Listen to this. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why did John write it? He wrote it so you'd believe it. He wrote it so you would come into an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ recognizing who he truly is. When you open up the Bible and you start in the book of Genesis, if you do that, it begins with God and creation. But when you open up the book of John, it begins with new creation. Not just any new creation. Yours. Great. God, you made the flowers, you made the trees, you made the sky, you made the water, you made the earth, you made everything turn, created the universe. But it gets personal when you realize He created you. And then when you messed up and fell, He had the power and paid the bill to recreate you. And that can only happen with Jesus. We're moving to a time of decision. So what? So what? Does it even really matter? <laughs> you bet it matters. You bet it matters. Do you really know who you're dealing with? Do you really understand who you worship when you sing? Who you pray to when you pray? Who you bow to when you bow? Do you realize what He is able to do? Do you realize what He has done? Do you realize who you really are and how you stand in the presence of God now? 
how you stood before you knew him? I am so thankful for each and every one of you that's here right now. And I'm glad you opened up your life and your time and your heart to this moment. But I don't want you to miss what God has for you right now, what Jesus has for you right now. He is here. And you're saying, I can't see Him. He's here. Jesus is in this room. Or he's a liar. The Bible says where two or three are gathered together, I am there in their midst. I'm with you. Walking down these aisles right now. Knowing everything about you that you've never told to anybody else. Knowing everything about you, the things that you won't even admit about yourself. And he's here right now. He knows everything about you. And in spite of all of that, all the dirty water that is you, he's here. He died for this purpose. He rose for this purpose. So he could go up to this cracked, ugly, polluted jar full of dirty water, which is you and me. and turn you into the finest wine. And then challenge people. Dip the ladle down. See what I have done. If you've never come into an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus, you can do that right now. Because everything that you need is right here, right now. A time, a space, a question, a person, a baptistry, water, change of clothes. It's all right here, right now. But the most important thing that's here right now is Him. Him. We watch the baptism videos and you see people rejoicing. Do you ever take the time to think that Jesus is standing right there in that baptistry? The guy who could walk on water? He's right there in that baptistry. So happy. And behind him, if the veil were torn away, the angels in heaven, wings outspread, their voices raised, praising God for the decision that's been made. Because the Bible says the angels rejoice when one sinner repents. Oh, if you could only see. If I could only see. And in a moment we're going to stand and if there's anyone that has never come into an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ, today is your day. This, this service and this moment was for you. There'd be someone right up there by that baptistry who'd love nothing more than share that with you. Many of you are here today. You have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But isn't it true 
that we constantly get dragged down in this lower story, in the cares and the concerns of this world, the challenges that just, that just drain us of all of our spiritual and emotional energy. We just got through a 12-week series of mental health, and so many of us are challenged by that, and we're struggling with that. But what if, instead of getting past all of the scientific words and all of the medical jargon that we would just like go into total simplicity and say, how about I just humble myself and get down on my knees and just cry out to my father? How about I, instead of trying to understand all those four syllable words, how about I just be a little child and I raise up my hands and I ask my father to pick me up and hold me in his hands and feel the security of his arms around me? What if I just did that? You're in the arms of love. You're in the arms of a healer and a faithful God. So these steps are open to all of you to just come to the well. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you're so good. So good. We're not, but we can be made new because you promised. We don't have to ask you to meet us here in this place. You were here before we got here. Help us, Father, to resolve our hearts and our minds to meet you. In Jesus' name, amen.